public health is based on that idea that we are all connected, that it's how do we conceptualize health on a community and population level. The Ethicist Corner, a new podcast brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Kiyogi, a physician who specializes in family medicine and practices with Kaiser Permanente in Bakersfield. Uh, in 2013, Dr. Kiyogi was named Family Physician of the Year by the California Academy of Family Physicians. And Dr. Kiyogi is also a former member of the Kegley Institute of Ethics Board of Directors. Dr. Kiyogi, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the Ethicist Corner. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Michael. So, um, to start, can you can you tell us a bit about your backgrounds? Uh, where did you grow up, and and where did you go to school growing up? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I went to high school in Los Alamitos, which is near Long Beach and Huntington Beach. Um, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved up and down the coast at different Navy bases. And then I uh, earned my degree in anthropology and my medical degree at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay, awesome. And, and so how did you get into, I mean, you say you earned your medical degree at, at, at Brown, and how did you decide to start pursuing medicine as a career? Kind of what drew you to this line of work? As a senior in high school, I applied and was accepted to Brown's eight-year program in liberal medical education. So it was, um, the, the mission and the vision of the program was to invest in the student's humanist education as much as the biomedical education. And so not only was it a guarantee admission into the medical school, but it was an opportunity to explore um, the entirety of the human experience and not just focus on the pre-med requirements. In that work, was there, you know, kind of growing up, was that a career that you kind of envisioned for yourself or was that something that kind of later in life because of the specific program, you started taking this career idea more seriously? Well, growing up, I, I applied to medical school after volunteering at the hospital, I remember. Uh-huh. I was like a candy striper at our local community hospital my junior year. I also remember having to take that um, Myers-Briggs inventory that our school counselor gave and the doctor was on the list. So I thought I'd try it out. (laughs) And then my favorite show was Doogie Howser. So I have to really owe it to Neil Patrick Harris. Wow. All right. Yeah. Going way back. I remember remember that. Yeah. Yeah, so for for our listeners, for our listeners who don't remember that one, right? Doogie Howser was like a he was like a teenage whiz kid or prodigy who became a physician at a really young age, right? Yeah, and he really was like a pioneer in blogging, right? Because he would keep this journal every day on his computer about his stories of yeah medicine. That's so funny. I haven't thought about that show in a long time. That that's a that's a great one. Flash from the past. Yeah, so I, because there's no doctors in real, in my real life growing up, I really only had that TV ideal idea of mm-hmm. what being a doctor was. Fortunately, I landed in this program at Brown, which really nurtures rather than try to weed out people interested in medicine. They really took care of us from freshman year 
to introduce us to different mentors, different peer groups, and every single year make sure that we're on track and find places in medicine where you could see yourself um, you know, for your lifetime as a career. Because it's mm -hmm. such a diverse, diverse special um, profession mm -hmm. that there really is room for every kind of person. And there's no need to really weed out you know, people in the nice. program. So it was a really supportive, nurturing, collaborative environment. And so fortunately, there was never a point in the eight years where I thought, maybe I shouldn't do this. And that's, that's really, and it's interesting you say that. Um, it kind of brings to mind for me, the, I mean, the importance of mentorship, uh, the importance of being in supportive environments and kind of people who help us get to where we, where we go in life. And, and so I'm just, you know, I mean, part of what we're interested in in this, this podcast is we're you know, interested in people's conceptions and ideas about, about leadership and their own leadership experiences. But it was kind of on the note that you just mentioned, are, you know, given that being a physician is a leadership role, and I think that's always been the case, but I think even particularly now in our, this COVID-19 crisis, right, that, you know, even increasingly so, people are recognizing the leadership of, of healthcare practitioners and physicians and others. Um, but are, are there kind of any exemplars or, or people or other leaders, maybe ones you've known or from afar who have kind of helped develop your idea and understanding of what it means to be a leader and have been impactful for you? Well, I think right now, um, the real leadership of our executive medical director in the Southern California Permanente Medical Group has been the most impactful on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. He is um, Dr. Ed Ellison, and he started out as a family doctor like me at Kaiser Orange County, and he now leads the entire medical group on both the regional Southern California level as well as the national Permanente level. And he really leads the culture of professionalism that is grounded in ethical medicine. And when he first ran for this position as chair of the board, um, that was his platform that what distinguishes Permanente medicine is our commitment to ethical medicine and our commitment to one another as interdependent colleagues. And so when you talk about ethical medicine, it's interesting. So can you say um, a little bit more about kind of what you, what you mean by ethical medicine and maybe kind of how, do, how does ethics relate to the work you do as a physician? To me, in general, my everyday practice of medicine is done without consideration for market value, fee-for-service, the cost of running a practice. And to me, because I don't have to think about the economics, I think there are less of the perverse incentives to provide more care that exists in this country mm -hmm. in general. And it really, working within the Kaiser Permanente system liberates me to just give the right care. For those who don't maybe understand and, and aren't, you know, aren't in your field and aren't practicing as physicians, um, what is like a day like for you kind of in your practice? I mean, what, what, is that, what does that look like now for you? Now or before? <laughs> well, so let, let, actually, actually, that's kind of, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe both. Because I think it'd be yeah. interesting, you know, how, how the current COVID-19 crisis, how that's impacting people in your field too and how maybe things have changed. But feel free to answer that maybe in both ways if you'd like. Yeah, so before life was, you know, 
eight to five and I would see about 20 patients and answer messages. And in the Kaiser Permanente system, I would describe it as kind of a single payer system, right? Mm -hmm. Because I only see patients who have one kind of insurance and everything I do in, in service to my patients is, is covered. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't need to ask anybody for permission to take care of my patient. So that, that's the normal every day. What has transpired in the last few weeks is that I feel much more connected to, you know, a, a medical group of thousands of experts who we now get on calls with every day. And then locally, our group of 160 physicians, we're on a Teams chat every day, talking to each other all day long. Um, I feel tethered in a way that I think the the chaos of COVID-19 threatens to disconnect. And um, I feel very privileged that I've, I'm still part of this system that is working really hard to do the right thing for both of our patients and our um, ourselves. So we're working very hard to clarify what is the appropriate protection that we need to provide to every level of care um, from you know, whoever gets into contact who in our patient care places. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is we've shut down two primary care clinics and all of our people are concentrated in two open clinics. One is trying to function as the well clinic where we can see babies and people without acute illnesses. And then we have the sick clinic where um, people have a higher level of protective gear and we can be good stewards and not be wasteful of, of the protective gear and make sure that no one is un, gets an exposure unplanned. Obviously so much in the media attention right now about COVID-19, which is just immense, right? I mean, it's kind of, there's, there's so much going on and the situation is so fluid, but one of the things that's struck me in part kind of thinking about what you were just talking about too in terms of staying in contact with this community of physicians and practitioners it's just kind of i mean the ethical heroism of medical of people providing medical care kind of who are on the front lines and it strikes me that there's an ethical dimension to that too right where you by being on the front lines and of course you're being as responsible as possible to prevent um yourself or others from becoming infected. But still, I mean, you're, you and many others are putting yourself out there, right, at personal risk to serve others. And do you see that as just like kind of part of what it means to be a physician, um, to do that work? Or, or is the COVID-19 crisis kind of requiring people to really step above and beyond what would normally be expected? Like, how do you see that role, both for yourself, but maybe, you know, thinking about physicians in New York right now, like with the situation there, I mean, how are, how are you thinking about that as, as a practicing physician? Yeah, I think New York is such a tragedy. I think they're at the point where they've used up a lot of their protective equipment and mm -hmm. have come to the point of wondering, do I continue to provide care without any protection? Um, that is a real ethical dilemma. I hope we don't have to face here. I think as an outpatient uh, physician, it's been very hard to maintain relationships and connection when you are completely 
masked and covered. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to provide care. It's, it's interesting to feel safe when you're providing care over the phone, mm-hmm. right? And, and you're, you know it's not the same level of care as when you could touch and listen and see your patient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you feel safer because I don't have to be in the same room as someone who's sick. Um, yeah, it's bringing up a lot of uh, ethical questions. But mostly, I, I've come to realize that, you know, all of the essential workers are much more vulnerable than we are because, mm-hmm. you know, infection control for us is a day-to-day practice. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I've always been washing my hands 100 times a day. We always clean the room before and after every patient. Our, our office practice has always had infection control in mind versus, you know, our, our police officers and our grocery workers. I mean, even if they wanted to wash their hands before and after every encounter with, with a person, how would they do that? There's mm-hmm. not a sink right there at their workstation. Mm-hmm. It's just brought up a lot of um, vulnerabilities, I think, to our system. Yeah, yeah, you know, and actually it's an interesting point you raise. I've been thinking about that too, where when we talk about ethical leadership, we 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 often think about people in kind of you know very prominent positions in society, maybe maybe political leaders, maybe you know, maybe physicians, maybe, maybe other people, right? Um, but actually you know, it's really kind of people across society who are working these essential businesses that are that are also acting as ethical leaders, right? Who are stepping up and putting themselves on the line too. Um, and pe- people delivering our food, people working, you know, um, uh, in the fields, people working in grocery stores. And I think that's uh, really important to recognize and kind of, I don't know, it demonstrates really well kind of the, the, the way that, that leadership can play a role across, you know, for everyone. So just a shout out to all those people and thank you for the work you're doing. And so one other question of kind of on this, this, uh, COVID-19 front. Are, are, there, are there lessons you and your colleagues have learned during this crisis that you could share with listeners? And I, that's a broad question, but I kind of mean even organizationally or, or just things that might give people hope and positivity, you know, in the midst of this crisis or things that you all have used as a source of strength. Um, so feel, feel free to interpret that as, you, as you'd like to interpret it. Well, I was thinking about the the lesson in terms of um, life lessons and, uh-huh. and thinking about how what we are living through now is really a, a workshop in two really important public health concepts. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing in real life um, unfolding before you are the concepts that number one, in public health, we are all connected. And number two, that vaccines work much like how social distancing works, but on the population scale. For the first concept, public health is based on that idea that we are all connected, that the difference between public health and regular health care is is that it's not one-to-one provision of service. It's how do we conceptualize health on a, on a community and population level where there is no us and them. It's just us because we're mm-hmm. all connected. 
I think one of the key mistakes that was made early in this country was to ban travel and to pretend that those lines on the map were real walls or borders was mm -hmm. a deadly mistake to ignore that the reality of our relationships and connections with one another was the breeding ground for the virus, mm. not borders on a map. And, and then there was a, the second uh, concept that we're seeing is really gonna change the way I counsel patients about vaccines going forward, because it is not about how, protecting yourself. There isn't value, there's less value for an individualistic person. Mm -hmm. And it's much, vaccines are much more valuable to citizens with a sense of community and a sense of duty to protect the vulnerable people in our community. Mm -hmm. There is a, a graphic that's been shared on social media that shows how staying home reduces transmission where you see like that, um, I guess it's like a, a graph where each branch, it almost looks like a basketball, you know, the branches out, branches out, but yes. in reverse. So if you take out one of the lines because they stay home, then that person transmits less of the virus. And if this other person stays home, then, but that is the concept of how vaccines work as well. So vaccines take out um, hosts for a virus or a bacteria. So when there's less available hosts, then the chain of transmission also falls apart. Mm -hmm. And that I think is how I will explain how vaccines work going forward. It's, it's not about individuals. It's about how do we reduce the denominator of hosts in a community. Right, that's really helpful because I think there are, there are that type of understanding is often lacking, at least in certain areas of the public. And of course, there's been right tremendous controversy over you know vaccines, um, based in part on a lack of credible information, uh, or not a lack of credible information, the information that lacked credibility being taken up as truthful, right, around the impact of vaccines, say on like things like autism, for example. Um, which was based on originally like a, a fallacious study that was published and then later retracted. But that, but it, the retraction did matter because people had already kind of taken up the original faulty study that had made a connection between vaccines and autism. So part of the, the kind of what I'm thinking about here is in our current crisis, when we have so much information that's being distributed around about COVID-19, are there sources of information that that you think are particularly accessible and understandable to the public that you'd recommend our listeners to check out um, as the situation progresses? Yeah, the uh, Kern County Department of Health has been sharing some really great graphics um, in information um, from the CDC and the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. I think right now it's important to focus on self-care and staying home if you're sick and what to do when you get sick mm -hmm. um, in order to not overwhelm the emergency room and your doctor's office. Um, we're gonna rely on everyone to become a first responder and to really take care of themselves until the point where they can't. Um, and so the, those graphics about you know, how to take care of yourself when you're sick are really important right now.
Thank you for that. Um, we want to close the podcast with uh, just a tradition that we, we like to do. Uh, we have five questions that just help our listeners get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. Okay. Um, so this is our lightning round. And uh, the first question is, what was the last book you read and would you recommend it to others? So yesterday I finished reading Leilani of the Distant Sea by Aaron and Trotta Kelly. And it's based in this island world with just fantastical animals and magic. And so it was a very sort of um, escape kind of book for young readers. Mm. I tend to like young reader books. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and escape, escapist literature is, uh, yeah. is, is pretty good right now, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what is your favorite travel destination? This would be near or far, and why? So I couldn't pick a favorite one, but our the last family vacation um, I, last summer was to Japan, and I would love to be able to go back to Japan and explore more. Because we did a National Geographic family tour, so it was very like boom, boom, boom. Every day was packed. Uh-huh. I'd like to maybe go during a different season and slow down and appreciate a neighborhood or something. That was really interesting in terms of like public spaces too, by the way, Uh where people are very conscious about being clean and considerate of others. Uh And um, yeah, there were no public trash cans. So all Uh of us had to carry our own trash until we got back to the bus or the hotel because you don't bring your trash out in public and people don't throw trash in the street. It's very, very kind of a, a different, di- different cultural aspects around that then, huh? Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah interesting. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone past or present, who would it be and why? I would love to have dinner with Michelle Obama. Mm. I think we could be BFFs. I read her. <laughs> I read her biography, and we have so much in common. Yeah, I think we, she and I would have a lot to talk about. Yes, good choice. <laughs> um, what is your thing, favorite thing about living in Bakersfield? Uh, the people and the generosity, just the authenticity of people in mm-hmm. Bakersfield. And last but not least, uh, who has been your favorite Kegley Institute of Ethics speaker over the years um, uh, and why? Angela Davis, yes. for sure. That was incredible. I think she really challenged and brought in my personal ideas about justice. Mm. Yeah, I agree. That was a, a special one for me and many other people, too. I just remember the energy in the room that night was pretty remarkable. Um, it's kind of unique for me as well. Um, well, Dr. Kyogi, thanks so much for, uh, spending time with us here. And we, we really appreciate, um, your insight and your words and, and also, uh, the work you're doing for health in our community. So thank you. It's my pleasure. You take care. Make you sure too. you wash your hands. Will do. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The Kegley Institute of Ethics is partnering up with Campus Programming to host the 7th Annual Ethics Bowl virtually through Zoom. 
The event begins the week of April 27th, where teams of three to five CACB students will debate ethics cases with community members and CACB faculty and staff serving as judges. To sign up, please email a list of all team participants, your team name, and team captain to aaldhulay2 at cacb.edu by April 20th. From the KAE team, stay home and stay safe. We'll see you next time.